Welcome to the Nun Report, bringing your regular dose of truth, freedom, and weirdness with your host, Dan Nunn. Thanks for tuning in to the weekly guest edition of the Nun Report. This week, we have on a true America First patriot from Washington that I've come to know over the course of several events. He served this country for much of his adult life as a 20-year veteran in the Special Forces, a field operative in the CIA, and as a foreign policy advisor for President Trump. He's now setting his eyes on Congress in Washington State's 3rd Congressional District, where in 2022 he was successful in primarying out a rhino and was narrowly defeated in the general election. He is currently campaigning for the same seat in 2024, focused on restoring common sense Republican values and defeating the woke extremist Democrat Congresswoman Maria Perez. Today, we'll touch on a range of topics from the debt ceiling, Biden crime family, border security, the war in Ukraine, and more, or whatever happens to come up while we're visiting throughout this hour. Um, so let's get right down to it, and welcome to the show, America First conservative, fellow MAGA Republican, and the hardest working candidate I know, Joe Kent. Joe, thanks for coming on today. I know you're a busy guy, and I appreciate your time. Um, so why don't we start with a little bit about yourself? Uh, I brought up your background of service in the intro. Uh, maybe expand on that some and talk about what you know how that has contributed and inspired you to uh, make this run for Congress. Yeah, absolutely. So I I never thought I'd get into politics. It wasn't on my radar at all. Did uh, twenty years in the military as a Green Beret. Went to combat eleven times. Did a, a tour as a CIA paramilitary operations officer. Uh, I thought that was going to be you know my my way in life was fighting for this country. Um, about four years ago, my late wife, who was also in the military, was killed fighting ISIS in Syria. She was killed a month after Trump tried to get our troops out of Syria the first time. So when, when that happened, I, I realized I had to stop getting shot at for a living, essentially, and, and really focus on my two sons. But I had a brief opportunity to meet President Trump uh, at Dover when I was waiting to receive my, my wife's remains. Um, and I, I was an early on Trump supporter, mostly because of his stance on ending our endless wars and putting America first. So I just told him, hey, Mr. President, like, you don't know who I am, but you're getting foreign policy right. You're just being undermined at the mid to senior levels in a way I've, I've never seen before. For the first two years of the Trump administration, you know, I, I had a front row view to it. I, I was at the Department of Defense, and then I was over at the CIA, and I got to see how mid-level bureaucrats, who are especially nonpartisan, were actively working against Trump. There was this attitude there that we, the experts, we know better, and this guy Trump doesn't know. But the American people elected Donald Trump. And so, to me, I, I was just really disgusted with that, but then it culminated with the uh, unelected bureaucrats like James Mattis, Brett McGurk in the State Department working against Trump when he gave the order to withdraw from Syria. That was a campaign promise that President Trump made, was defeat ISIS. Once all the ground that ISIS controlled was taken away, Trump said, okay, I'm going to bring our troops home. And that's when he actively started working against him. And a month later, my wife and three other Americans were killed because of that inaction. And so I, I shared that with President Trump. I didn't think much would, would come from our conversation. But a couple weeks later, his team reached back out to me and they said, hey, we don't know what you said to the boss, but he wants to hear more. So I went back out to D.C., got to uh, chat with some of his uh, national security team, did some advisory work on foreign policy, on counterterrorism, those types of things, worked heavily on the Trump 2020 campaign, had a job offer to go back and work in a second Trump at and then in the national security realm. And then the 2020 happened. You know, I, I watched uh, my, my hometown back here essentially get burned down by Antifa, the COVID lockdowns. I can see that our country was changing. All, a lot of the bad authoritarian things that I saw take place overseas, I saw happening yeah. here in America. I was very, very alarmed. Then the election went the way it did. There was the, the fortification, the rigging, all that. 
And then my congresswoman, who was a Republican, voted for Trump's impeachment. And so when that happened, I was like, okay, this this can't stand. Like, I'm not going to let my country just slip away. So that's that's how I got into the fight. We we were successful. We took out the, the Trump impeachment voter after having 10, 15 million spent against me in the primary. And then unfortunately, we fell just a little bit short there in the uh, in the general loss by less than a percentage point. So right after the recount was done, because it was that close, we just ran out and kicked back off again because we're uh, this country's worth fighting for and we're going to stay in the fight. All right. Well, um, it's great to have you in the fight for sure. So as a former special uh, forces officer, you've been around the world some and probably uh, have a little better handle on geopolitics than most of us do. Um, Many on the conservative side see what's happening in Ukraine and they, they just want it to end. It seems like we've gone from one massive transfer of wealth to big pharma during COVID. And now we've shifted that over uh, to the military industrial complex. Um, you know, once again, like we always seem to do. Am I wrong? Even before Putin invaded Ukraine, we were being told, hey, we might have to go to war over here. They found a new war to get us into. That's inevitable. It's always going to happen. War and foreign aid is the easiest way for the ruling class to launder taxpayer dollars overseas and right back into their pockets. So there's that that level. But then also, look, you know, Putin shouldn't have invaded Ukraine. I mean, he's he's in the wrong. The Ukrainian people are fighting for their, their survival, and I respect that. The thing is, is it in the vital national security interest of the United States government to continue to provoke this? And I, all you have to do is look at a map, and the answer is very clear. And it's no. There's an invasion on our southern border, not on the eastern Russian-speaking border of Ukraine. There's a couple other factors here. The, the biggest factor is that we threw this massive aid package at the Ukrainians. We basically armed them. We bragged about how we're providing terminal guidance that's killing russian soldiers russian generals mm-hmm. so we were being very very provocative towards russia and look if you go back and you look at the cold war you know there was a long time where we had nuclear weapons pointed at each other we still do but tensions yeah. used to be much higher when we had saner people in charge republicans and democrats they did everything they could to prevent conflict on either one of our borders and look ukraine is in the vital national security interest of russia not in america so it's an existential threat everything that happens in ukraine is an existential threat threat to the Russians. So that's how they will treat this. And yeah. we, we, for whatever reason, refuse to acknowledge that. Um, so we're moving closer to a nuclear conflict. I mean, especially, I mean, Trump was asked the other night on CNN, do you want the Ukrainians to win? As if it's a binary question. And he gave a great right. answer. He wants the killing to stop. That's what I want. But think about it. If, if you want the Russians to lose, you are going to back Russia into a corner. Putin is not going to go down like Gaddafi. He's not going to go down like Saddam because when you start using this regime change narrative and language, people like Putin are going to go, oh, I know what happened to Gaddafi. I know what happened to Saddam, except for I have the insurance policy. I have nuclear weapons. So if yeah. Russia does fail and we push them into this corner, the I think ramifications can be catastrophic. Another major issue is we threw the kitchen sink of sanctions at Russia. We said, hey, we're the U.S. We're, gonna, we have, we're the prime reserve currency holder. We're going to make it so you guys can't use the dollar ever again. And China came in and said, well, we can cut yeah. you a deal, bro. We'll, we'll underwrite this whole thing. Putin pinned the ruble to the gold. So now they're using gold standard, but they're also having their economy underwritten by the Chinese, the yuan. And China went and they started consolidating a bunch of other economies. They said, look, America, they just act like bullies. They run all on debt, which is true. They just killed off their natural resources sector. 
all these guys have to offer us is this nonsense fiat currency, the dollar. And so now they're going to OPEC and saying, hey, can we buy oil with yuan? The OPEC nations, because they sense that mm -hmm. Biden is weak, they don't trust him. They're saying, yeah, absolutely, you can buy our oil with yuan. And now China is consolidating all these major economies. If you just look at look at the map and you look at how much land mass China and Russia together are, again, looking back at the Cold War, everything that we did in the Cold War was, was meant to drive a wedge between Russia and China because Russia has an exorbitant amount of natural resources. China has a massive labor market. If you combine those two and they're hostile towards you like they are yeah. towards us, you basically just created a massive superpower. And for no reason, again, what did we get out of it? Well, we, we got some people that feel better about themselves because they can put a Ukrainian flag in their bio and say they, they support sending billions of dollars. And look, at the end of the day, I, I know war firsthand. The oligarchs, the rich people, the powerful people, they never feel the consequences of war. Right now, the Ukrainian people are feeling the consequences of war. We don't know the exact number, but I, I do think it's close to 100,000 casualties or so that they've seen over there. And this is the U.S. leading. This is the U.S. saying, hey, we got your back. We got your back. But if they look at history at some point in time, we will get sick of this and we will not be yep. able to afford it. And we'll leave and they'll be left holding the bag. So, again, I, I think the most rational thing for us to do is to say, hey, Let's come up. Let's host a ceasefire talks. Zelensky, like we still have the, we still have some leverage of the Ukrainians because they need our our aid. I would, I'm, I'm against us giving them much more aid, but I wouldn't condition any aid on Zelensky actively being at the negotiating table with Putin. And with Putin, we need to be able to cut him a deal and say, look, there's a way for you to come back from this and to re-enter the world economy. That's going to do two things. It's going to give him an incentive to get away from the killing, but then also hopefully to start to drive a wedge between them and China. But every day that goes by, those those options, they, they really, really diminish. Yeah, I mean, it's... This whole blank check policy that seems to be with zero accountability, um, you know, where is this money going? We know that a lot of people are getting pretty wealthy from it in Ukraine and in the United States. And um, and, and I'm sure, you know, it's, it's also going toward the war effort. But the fact that there's just no accountability and there's no end, there, there's no what's the end game here is the end game. All of Ukraine? Is it to get Crimea back to? Is it to uh, dispose of Putin? You know, is it because those are all not very realistic goals? I mean, I, I think we could hope to maybe get back to where it was. Um, yeah. But the most important thing seems to be we need to have we need that peace, right? I mean, it needs to stop. We can't can continue forever. So uh, you got to put benchmarks in place and 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 like you say, give uh, give Putin a. a a, a way back in and a way to save face, a way to um, re-enter, you know, the, the the free world, I guess, so to speak, and and uh, and then see if he does. You know, who knows? If you don't ask, the answer is always no, right? That's right. That's one hundred percent right. Yeah, and we, we can't continue this language where we just say, "Hey, we want regime change. Putin's got to go. We want Russia to lose." If we do that, we're only adding, you know, more fuel onto the dumpster fire. I think there's two really big questions that American citizens should always ask their government whenever the government comes and says, "We need to go to country X and fight." The first question should be, "What's the vital U.S. national security interest?" And when they start waxing philosophically about like the post-war liberal order and all these like, freedom, democracy cut them off and say, no, 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 tell me what the actual vital national security interest is. The second thing we have to ask our leaders is say, okay, what does winning look like? What's the end state? Because the whole 20-year war that I fought, 
we could never fully define that. It was always like, well, we need to go get the Al-Qaeda guys that attacked us in 9-11, but then we need to go to Iraq and we need to build a democracy. And every time I would ask this question, I'd say, so wait, what, what's our end game? I would get some pie-in-the-sky answer about, like, well, we're going to build a, a viable and democratic, you know, Iraqi force, Yemeni force, Afghan force, whatever it was. But no one could ever give a concrete answer as to what that looked like or a timeline. So all that equals is a blank check and a, a continuing payday yeah. for the military industry complex and more deaths yeah and now now iran is running iraq and the taliban is back running afghanistan and it's and they've got all of our equipment to do yeah. it with it's it, it, it yeah. is a it's a cycle that we seem to put ourselves through as as the united states that um we just don't seem to learn from our past but um if you want to speaking of regimes uh you brought up the word the biden regime they seem uh, dead set on ignoring existing immigration standards and and you know they, they've twisted what legal methods there were to immigrate here and made them like many things they, they took a word or a term and made it mean something that it was never meant to mean um and, and you know we have this crisis down there at the border as a result that's happening right now it's been going on i think like 6.3 million have entered the country that includes gotaways that they estimate it's about 30 percent of that number is is the gotaways we don't know where they came from where they're going who they are or anything like that you see uh, chinese people coming in you see people from the middle east coming in a lot of venezuelans of course um and people from south america but uh what's your position on the immigration policy and how would you address the issue I mean, right now we just have, we don't have borders anymore. I mean, Biden has been very clear. Like none of this is just because Joe's eating an ice cream cone and he, he's got dementia. This is a deliberate plan. Biden said the border's wide open. Every step that DHS and Mayorkas has taken has been to facilitate the flow of as many illegal immigrants into this country as possible. Most of whom I, I, I think are just economic uh, migrants who want to come here because they've been offered a good deal. I don't mm -hmm. fault them. There's also a lot of cartel violence. I mean, the number one killer of Americans right now is fentanyl coming across the border. And that's killing thousands of Americans every single year. And our government is facilitating this absolute insanity. So I think as far as an immigration policy goes, we're, we're at such a point right now where it's been such a catastrophe that we're going to have to take some very harsh measures. So border security, I, I think, is probably going to be the easiest part of that. Get our military the heck out of Europe and Syria and all these other places and get them down to the border. Secure our border. Enable the Border Patrol to actually say that, hey, stop. No one's coming in. How about that? If you want asylum, you go to a third country and you do the proper paperwork. I helped out a bunch of Iraqis when we left Iraq who had really, really risked it all and earned their way into this country. It mm -hmm. took us about two years to get them over here because they had to go to a third country first. They couldn't immediately come to America. Right. That's the way the system is supposed to work. So... Get the military down there, secure the border, absolutely essential. Uh, I'm, I support us doing uh, limited military strikes, paramilitary operations against the drug cartels because, very simple, they're actually killing Americans. This isn't Vladimir Putin's threat to our democracy. Mm -hmm. This is a real, easily definable, vital national security interest. I think then we have to do mass deportations, um, but I really want to be able to focus our federal law enforcement, and we have a lot of reform to do for federal law enforcement, but I want to focus our federal law enforcement <laughs> on go going after the cartel members, going after the very dangerous people. The economic migrants, if we cut off their ability here in America to make money, most of them will just self-deport. If we make it very clear that, hey, number one, like you're not going to be able to get a job and we're going to go after employers that hire you, E-Verify is a key concern. I understand like Thomas Massey and some of our, our libertarian friends who have 
an issue of E-Verify, but E-Verify is a great way to prevent illegals from being able to make a paycheck here in yeah. America. Start start taxing any kind of remittance. Remittance needs to get taxed. That's when people make money here and they send it back to their country. A lot of that they're able to do because they work under the table or they're able to do because they're sending it out of the country. That stuff needs to be taxed. We also have to make it very, very clear that hey, if you came here illegally, you will never be an American citizen. If you want to be an American citizen, you need to go follow the process. You need to self-deport. You need to get the heck out of here. No more amnesty deals. Amnesty has been a scam. We've been lied to every single time it's been mentioned. With the DACA kids, the kids that came over and they didn't even know that they were illegally immigrating into the country, there's a special category of visa I think we could create for them, but they still need to go through the process of becoming uh-huh. an American citizen properly because we can't continue to reward people from coming across the border. I also, birthright citizenship, and I mean, by birthright i mean like right now the way our laws are written if you were born in america regardless of how your mother and father got here you're you're automatically an american citizen and then essentially you can't deport the parents because you can't deport the baby the baby's a citizen what are we what are we rewarding we're rewarding people coming over here and having children because they know that that's a pathway to citizenship i would get rid of the birthright citizenship obviously if one of your parents is an american citizen doesn't matter where you're born you're an american i'm not disputing that but birthright citizenship rewards all the wrong behaviors. As far as uh, other immigration goes, I basically, it's, it's real simple for me. If you're getting a visa to come over here and simply just work, I feel it's our duty as, as an American government to put our citizens first. And we should be very judicious with those visas. Now, if you have a special skill, you're going to help us cure cancer, something like that. Obviously, yeah. we should have programs for stuff like that. However, the H-1B visa system, I think, is the greatest example of this. This is so-called high-skilled labor. This is where we bring in a lot of folks uh, from Asia to work in the tech sector. And this has been an absolutely predatory practice that's only benefited the major uh, technology companies because they'll bring in cheap labor, and then they don't have to hire Americans. And so Americans that went to school, got trained in tech, they're priced out of the market. There's, There's many such visas like this. And look, Right now, I think we have a lot of work to do culturally here in America to to restore the value of working hard. But I, like, someday would like to see where Americans are also doing these manual labor jobs. Right now, there's way too much access to free cash in the American system. And it's too hard for for high school kids to go out and get jobs and and work. So I understand farmers and ranchers are still going to need to have some seasonal workers. That just needs to be heavily regulated to make sure those people can't come over here and stay. But eventually, someday, I I would like it so that American citizens are doing those jobs. I know it's a novel concept that, like, we should actually be putting our people first. That's basically my immigration policy. The labor market in the U.S. is is such a systemic thing. I mean, when I was a kid, I did paper routes. I mowed lawns. You know, I did things. Um, I I went fishing in the Bering Sea when I was 15 years old. I, I, you know, I always, I always cut my own way and, and, and I, I worked hard to get to where I got. And I've, I've started over, uh, I think three different times in my life. And every time it's been something a little bit different and with new twists and new turns, but, uh, but the foundation was always there. And I, I think that we're just missing that so much now. And you, one of the things you brought up that I've, that I've talked about a lot on this show is, um, yeah, absolutely targeted, uh, you know, special, uh, strikes or, or missions into Mexico. We know where the cartels are. We know where their distribution line is. We know where their manufacturing plants are. We know where their families are. You know what, why do we continue to just let this, um, you know, the, this poison, that's being imported to a large extent from China, manufactured in Mexico yeah. and sent to the United States. I mean, it's insane to just sit here and let this happen, right? A 
hundred percent. Yeah. And look, I mean, we have a, uh, there's a lot of things we learned in the war on terror, our ability to run down and strategically decapitate terrorist networks, like what the cartels are. We are very proficient at that. We are very good. We got 20 years of training. We, we got tactically very proficient strategically. I think for a, a wide variety of reasons, we weren't successful in the middle East, but for a limited operation like this, where we could partner with the Mexican government and say, Hey, look, we're going to help you guys get rid of these drug cartels. You probably wouldn't even have to have very many Americans in harm's way or pulling the trigger, enable the Mexicans to do it. We're, this is something that we are very good at. And so I think if we put up the physical security on the border to stop the flow, and then we started doing very limited strikes uh, with heavy special operations, heavy CIA, paramilitary, I, I think we could take care of the cartels. We do have to help out, help out the Mexican government a little bit here and there. But look, we send billions, if not trillions, to countries that we can't even touch. Mexico's national security is actually in our direct national security. They're one of our mm -hmm. biggest trading partners. They have a potential of being a very good trading partner and a very good neighbor. They've been overrun by the cartels. Let's help them out with that. I, and also, like you said, it's a very much it's very much a vital national security interest. Fentanyl is killing Americans. If the U.S. government is not actively working against that, again, I go back to well, what are we even paying these people for? What are we paying our, yeah. our government officials for if it's not to protect American citizens? No, oh, no doubt, no doubt. Um, it's it's. Uh, I, I know it's, it's even it's hard to even articulate how I feel about it sometimes because I just can't even believe that it's going on and what's happening the way yeah. it's happening. It's it, it, and, I, and I just it it, it it boggles boggles the mind. I know you're a big Trump supporter, um, and and he endorsed you in your last campaign, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, and that's a good endorsement to have. I, I think his his success rate is pretty good regardless of what legacy media tries to tell us um <laughs> did you watch the town hall i did i thought it was fantastic it was yeah. <laughs> it was great man it was it was, it was, it was so he he was on fire man he he uh he, he, he had all his little trumpisms out there and um he had his little zingers and uh, and he stayed on message pretty well uh and uh you know he's the guy He's the guy that's going to be able to make the bold moves, I think, to get this country back. I mean, in my opinion, um, there is no other candidate that can do it. I'll support yeah. whoever the nominee is for the Republicans, uh, if it's DeSantis or if it's somebody else. I'll certainly support yeah. them, of course. Uh, but I really, really don't think there's anybody out there. Trump is the man right now. We have a generational opportunity. A candidate, a person like him, doesn't come around very, very often at all. And um, he, he, he's... Uh, uniquely qualified, I think, in that he understands the swamp much more than he did when he first went. I think you mentioned earlier on that, um, you know, he kind of surrounded himself with some people that maybe he shouldn't have surrounded himself with. And I don't think he understand, understood the, the pushback he was going to get and, and just uh, how deep the, the swamp was. But now he does. And uh, what do you think about Trump going into 24 here? Well, look, they're going to fight him tooth and nail. Everyone knows that. I mean, is there anyone in our history who's been just as hounded and prosecuted as President Trump? I mean, essentially, like, after after the, the last election, which obviously there was major, major issues with, which, you know, you're not allowed to talk about. However, we know what happened in the last election. Every American knows what happened in the last election. Yeah. And then after that, Trump, essentially, because of the way that the narrative was created around January 6th, as a sitting president, he was completely and totally deplatformed. 
he had to basically flee his home in New York to go down to Florida. And ever since then, he has just been inundated with, you know, bogus charge after bogus charge after bogus charge. So it's going to be very, it's going to be challenging for, for Trump to win. I think the primary is essentially is over. I, I agree with you. I will support whoever the Republican nominee is, but I think there really isn't much of a primary. That's why CNN am on there. They, they even know that. The general election is going to be challenging. I mean, the Democrats are going to pull out all the stops. They're going to pull out all the stops against Trump. But also for me, this is truly what makes the case for Trump. The guy is unique in every single way. He's already been through the ringer. And, and even with the best of intentions, I don't think there's anyone else who could stand up the way Trump has stood up. Like the deep state is going to come so hard after anybody who steps into this. So there's a lot of folks that are saying, well, DeSantis is great because DeSantis is Trump without the, the, the Trumpism, whatever that means. That argument's got yeah. a lot of flaws. But the biggest argument I think there is like, look, DeSantis is about my age. He's, He's vulnerable. Independently wealthy. He's vulnerable, man. They're, yep. And they are going to throw everything. If DeSantis becomes a nominee, everything they did to Trump, they will do to DeSantis. Now, the question is, can DeSantis endure that? And I, and I think this, this isn't a ding on his character. He can't. I don't think I could either because, you know, I, I don't own buildings. I'm not independently yeah. wealthy. I'm not in my 70s. This isn't my last hurrah. I got to worry about yeah. my kids. That's why I'm in the fight. But, like, Trump has already given most of his wealth over to his kids. He's been successful. We, they released his taxes. The guy lost money as president the deep state has done everything that they can possibly do, do to the guy and he knows that so hire the guy who already knows how evil it is who stood in the breach and who's on one last mission i mean like this he wouldn't even have to worry about re-election this next time so for me between that, yeah. that and his record of, of giving us four years of peace and prosperity that to me is, is the case for trump but again man they are gonna they're gonna hammer him this is why they took tucker off of prime time i don't think they're gonna give trump much more prime time uh footage so it, it's it's gonna be challenging it's gonna be a fight we're gonna need all hands on deck for it yeah we think a lot alike i mean trump is the honey badger he doesn't uh he doesn't give a shit so it, it's like yeah. you you just um you know, whereas DeSantis, like, you know, he is vulnerable. He has a family. He has a, you know, young family, and he, he's yeah. um, still he's still making his way. He's not independently wealthy. He's well off, obviously, but he's not independently wealthy by any measure. Right. So um, so Trump does have what it takes. And, um, do you think they'll indict him federally? Yes. Do you think I, the deal... I, yeah? yeah, I do. I, I think they will indict him as many times as they possibly can. I, I think that they have the uh, Mark Elias Perkins Cooey legal... Uh, Legal, like, league of evil lawyers out there that are looking for anything they can indict this guy on from from the, the bogus like whatever the sexual assault nonsense was all the way to the un, the unspecified charges against him in new york this stuff is going to keep coming anything they can use against the guy i don't think anyone should be surprised or believe anything <laughs> anything that trump gets charged with because there's 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 no bottom to it yeah, you know, I think they could put him in, in uh, prison and he could still get elected, actually. But um, yeah. <laughs> there's, and, you know, there's so much coming out. I mean, we, we talked about, I mean, they're, 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 whether you, you look at, um, you know, what happens in the election, and that's something we need to get better at. I think our ground game could be better. We, we like, I'm for paper ballots. I'm for voter ID. I'm for uh, same-day voting. But that's not going to happen in 24. You know, it, that's right. So that's exactly first we've right. got to get in there. And, and part of that, I think, is is playing by the same set of rules. We can't continue to operate under, oh, well, we're not going to stoop to that level. No, no, no. We need to. Yeah. If we don't, you know, we're lost. And, um, you, you know, I, I think I think there should be a ballot box at every single church, every single NASCAR track, every single NHL stadium, you know, at all those places where that are primarily conservative voters 
take the ballot box to the people instead of waiting for them to come to the ballot box because that obviously has not worked last few cycles right 100 percent, man i mean especially here in washington state now we could probably talk for hours we we basically have been doing 2020 now for well over a decade so we have issues of our elections however we have to win within this system in order to change the system. I, I talk to conservatives every single day, uh, in person, online, that are like, hey, man, it's all rigged. My vote doesn't matter. That's exactly what the Democrats want you to believe. Because if you don't even show up and bother casting a ballot, they don't have to play any games. Then they can actually legitimately win because conservatives are disenfranchised. So we've got to get good on ballot harvesting. Last cycle, uh, a big mistake we made uh, was telling people to vote only on game day. There was logic behind that. Yeah. But that came back and that, that, that kind of you know, uh, came back to haunt us, bit us in the butt. We neglected a, an entire three weeks where we could have been chasing ballots down. We could have been going after the, the low propensity voters who don't participate in midterms to get them to vote. Now, look, the Democrats have absolutely horrible ideas, but their execution is really something that we should we should commend. I mean, hats off because those guys can actually get out. They have a ground game. They have discipline and they chase ballots and they have strategies behind it. So this is a place yeah. where we're a little bit behind the eight ball, but I think, but you're hundred percent right. If we can get ballot boxes in the vast majority of churches, gun stores, gun shows, places where we know conservatives congregate, go to where the fish are and yeah. get ballots in front of these people's hands. And then it, we have to get that into our culture. I mean, me as a candidate, I did like 300 plus town halls. And so I was like, hey, I'm going to get my message out there and inspire people to vote for me. And that works for a certain percentage, probably about the percentage that I got. But to get across the finish line, unfortunately, we have to get out there and go to where we know conservatives are. But these are the conservatives that are too busy. And I, and I get it, man, for people that are just like, I'm trying to survive. I'm working two jobs. I got kids. Like, I don't give a crap about the ballot that got sent out. We need to go get in front of those people because most of them, if we get in front of them, they're going to check the R box. They're going to vote for Republicans. They're going to vote for conservatives yeah. because they're smart. They know what's going on. They know what Inslee and Biden are doing to our country and to our state. Yeah, I mean, and that's, yeah, the, and the Democrats, yeah, they're, I mean, I, I, I you know, like you said, lousy ideas, great ground game. They're really good at circling, circling the wagons. And they get behind their candidates. They don't, they don't screw around and have you know twenty candidates running against each other, splitting the vote up. Um, and and they, uh, they've been very successful with that. And they get a very strong unified message, even though it's a screwed up message. It's still, it's still unified, you know. And um, yeah. so, you look back at the at more and more information is coming out about uh, corruption in the, in the Biden family. And I think we've all seen that. I think the, the laptop has, you know, a lot of information came out of that. Everybody's accepted that as fact. It's real. It is real. These emails are real. The things that Hunter Biden was engaged in were real. It becomes more uh, difficult to tie that into President Biden, into the family, I think, in a, in a provable fashion. But, um, but I mean, it, it's there, right? All the smoke is there, and now you, so you have influence peddling, you have the electioneering that went on with the suppression of the laptop, in collusion with it looks like the intelligence community, or at least people that used to be in the intelligence community. Um, you have a letter signed by fifty-one, you know, former uh, intelligence people that it turned out to be complete garbage. And yeah. how how do you get how do you fix that? I mean, if the if the corruption, if the level of the swamp is that deep how do you fix that man 
Yeah, it, it's going to take a ton of oversight and actual accountability. Again, this goes back to why they, they hate and fear President Trump, because Trump the other day, he said this multiple times, what's the biggest threat to our country? The biggest threat to our country is the administrative state, that we have elected bureaucrats that have become the most powerful branch in our government. And I, I think nothing exemplifies that more than what like our national security apparatus did in the election of 2020. We had very, very prominent former directors of the CIA, Michael Morrell, Michael Hayden, all these guys. Um, who we've been listening to and, re- and relying on for intelligence for the last 20 plus years, mm-hmm. uh, who said, hey, the Hunter Biden laptop has all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. And they were working hand in glove with the Democrats. I mean, most of us yeah. guessed it at the time, but now we can prove it. And look, Biden, everyone's known that Biden's been a, a corrupt old senator and then a corrupt old vice president for quite a while. But what we've recently uncovered goes far beyond like your standard graft. I remember when I was in Iraq, when Obama first came into office, it was kind of an open joke around the Baghdad embassy that all the sweetheart deals that Dick Cheney and Halliburton had had now gotten transferred to Joe Biden and, and his brother, Jim Biden, because Jim Biden made a killing in Iraq. So yeah. there was that. And that, was, that I think that's kind of like what everybody thought the extent of it was. But if you look at what, what the uh, House Oversight Committee just put out directly linking multi-millions of dollars being transferred from known it's a CCP intelligence agents to the Biden family. It's very clear that we have a very compromised president right now. And if you look at every action the Biden administration has taken since he took power, killing off U.S. En- US energy, everything he's done on the southern border, everything we talk about with geopolitics of Ukraine, everything has directly benefited the Chinese Communist Party. And so we have a major, major issue. I'm really proud and uh, really excited about the work that the House Republicans are doing right now with weaponization, with oversight, really bringing a lot of this to light. Mm-hmm. But the problem is Congress can't arrest anybody. They can hold people in contempt. And at, at best, if the Republicans are in power, that's going to be a, a slap on the wrist. The Democrats have weaponized that because they're the Democrats. They're gangsters. Um, yeah. But what we need to do is we need to take back the Senate. We need to take back the White House. So that we can really start holding these people accountable and make sure that the 51 intelligence officials lose their clearances and many of them actually face charges. And I mean, the exact same thing with everything that's been revealed with how compromised the Biden crime family is tying back to the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, this war on uh, uh, energy, on the energy sector of the United States is is just... um, you know, while we're sitting here talking about banning gas stoves, uh, China is building a record number of new coal-fired power plants, um, and, and they they have cheap energy. They're la- they've got to be laughing their asses off. I mean, we're um, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. It, it's it's for something that I don't. You know, what we're going to change the weather? Is that what we're going to do? And um, the footprint of their so-called clean energy really isn't all that clean. And, uh, you know, you need to have clean energy to be a powerful nation. I- I- as long as China is doing what they're doing and Russia is doing what they're doing, uh, Pakistan too. I mean, so many, what it, we, we just, it, we've got to get back to a state of, of cheap energy. We produce it cleaner than anybody else in the world. Our regulatory bodies keep that in check. We can we can drill oil, we can we can frack, we can uh, get natural gas, and we can do it better and cleaner than anybody else in the world. We also have nuclear power. Why aren't we focusing more on that? Yeah, no, you know? exactly. I mean, energy independence. I think is yeah, kind of, kind yeah, of I mean, energy independence. I think is the linchpin of our economy. And, and the media doesn't cover any of this. They just sit there and, you know, they're, they they nod their heads and do whatever the administration tells them to do. Um, 
I don't know where they get their marching orders from, but they all seem to have the same talking points and the same headlines every time we go through, right? Uh, I'm going to shift gears here a little bit. One of the things that I think is really, and we touched on this a little bit, I guess, kind of in the work ethic of the United States and, and the labor market and the systemic problems that there are there that people just aren't actually learning to work. And I think a lot of that is the breakdown of the nuclear family. Um, you, you don't have, in fact, it's discouraged. People, women are supposed to stay, get get to the office, get abortions and work. Don't, don't have a family, yep. don't have kids, don't be faithful to your husband and, and vice versa. And it's become this permissive um, society that is destroying the fabric of this country. Um, the rule of law, the societal breakdown, I think a large part of that is the education system and uh, because it's an indoctrination system. What are your thoughts on the education system and the policies that could be done uh, state on the state level and nationally even to make it better? Because it, seems like, it seems like every time the federal government, the more they get involved, the worse things get. They need to get out of it. Well, I mean, that's the simple answer right there. Look, we, we have a huge problem. In this country, but especially in Washington State, Washington just voted for that SB 5999 uh-huh. that gives the state the ability to take your kids away from the parents and then give them so-called gender-affirming care, mutilation, castration. We all know what that truly is. But they're, mm-hmm. they're trying to cut the parents out of the education process. And you just got to ask yourself, why would you do that? If you have the best of intentions and you just want to teach my kids you know, how to read and write and science and all that stuff, well, why do you need to cut the parents out of that? There's obviously something else at play there. And we know what it is because we, we've seen the books they're putting in the libraries. We've seen the school curriculums, especially with COVID when parents started tuning in to watching what their kids were learning on Zoom. I think a lot of parents got a, got a huge wake-up call about the mass amount of indoctrination that's taking place in our schools. So we, we've got to fight that tooth and nail. Uh, a forcing function that we had from the federal government was the Parental Bill of Rights. The Republicans put forward a very basic mm-hmm. piece of legislation that said, hey, if you want federal funding for your school, then you will give the parents transparency on the curriculum. Very basic, right? Every single Democrat, including my opponent, voted against that. And again, I go back to like, well, ask yourself, why are you against transparency? Why can't the parents see mm-hmm. this stuff? And that would have been a great lifeline for people like us here in Washington State, where we, we have, we're fighting Olympia. We're fighting Inslee. We're fighting the, the state legislature. That would have given the parents at least a fighting chance. And every Democrat voted against it. I, I really think right now we, we've got to push for school choice. We've got to push for school vouchers. Give, put the parents in the driver's seat. If they want to homeschool, if they want to uh, use private schools, charter schools, I would let the parents make that decision. Arizona, Texas, a few other states have this great program. I think Utah, my little brother lives down there, and he said they have the same program. Where for, for every kid, they're getting somewhere between five and $7,000 where the parent gets the choice. And now you're going to actually have to have these public schools step their game up or they're going to lose their funding. It puts just parents in the driver's seat. And that, that's the place I think we really need to get to in order just to stop this nonsense that the, uh, the teachers' unions and all the indoctrination are trying to shove down our kids' throats. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I, I agree with you 100%. Um, I mean, some even go as far as, I mean, the Department of Education didn't even exist until Jimmy Carter. So uh, yeah, another massive point? bureaucracy, yeah. a, a, another money pit, another, uh, you, know, ma- you know, just job security for a lot of people that just push stuff around and make things worse. Uh, I want to talk about the Second Amendment for a minute. I imagine you probably have a yeah, few things to say about that. Uh, here in Washington State, the you know the politicians have been chipping away at it. They just recently passed the uh, the assault weapon ban in the the, the high capacity magazine, um, and it seems to basically include every rifle with a de- detachable magazine. Um, 
as a veteran, uh, as someone who believes strongly in the Constitution, uh, you probably have a few things to say about that, huh? I do. I mean, the only reason that there's an insurance policy on all of our God-given rights is the Second Amendment. I mean, like the Second Amendment was designed so that we can defend ourselves, defend our property, yeah, but also defend ourselves from a tyrannical government. I mean, that's our right. I mean, our origins are that we fought a revolution against the British, and our founders were, were geniuses. They wanted to make sure that we always retain the right to defend ourselves from a government that can become too tyrannical. And I hope that we never actually have to take that to the next level and use it, but this is something that we have. So you have Democrats like Bob Ferguson, Jay Inslee, that are trying to take away our time. These same Democrats, they've opened up the southern border for fentanyl and for the drug cartels and endless crime here in Washington state. They've tied our law enforcement officers' hands behind their back. Police can't pursue. Drugs have been legalized. Crimes essentially been legalized. Everywhere you go in the state, there is just rampant crime everywhere. And at the same time, they want to take away our abilities to defend ourselves. So this is where we're heading towards the point of anarcho-tyranny. The, the Second Amendment is was just a big period at the end of it. All the people that are like, well, this exception, that exception, that, that, that's not the Second Amendment at all. That's infringements upon our rights. So we, we've, we've yeah. got to defend people's God-given yeah. rights to defend themselves. And don't you think that ultimately, I mean, isn't confiscation the, the end game for the extreme commie Democrats? I mean, if you... It seems to be. I mean, registering braces is a, is a case in point. Um, redefining uh, yeah. pistols as short-barreled rifles and, and requiring people to register them when they purchase them legally, and then after the fact, having to register them or face a felony, ten years in prison. I mean, this yeah. is. Uh, why do they need to know who has these things, unless they want to come and get them someday? I mean, they say it out loud frequently. I mean, Beto O'Rourke, you know, the Texas governor candidate, he, he used to say it all the time, I'm going to come after your assault rifles, I'm going to take your AK and your AR. And Biden's parroted this exact same thing. Every time there's a, a mass shooting tragedy, which I think speaks to our mental health crisis more than anything else, you hear Democrats saying, like, ban all AR-15s. And the next step, if they, if, they can, if they can start banning specific weapons, the next step, like you said, it's going to be confiscation because they're going to say, like, hey, we've now deemed that these, whatever, this accessory, the magazine, the way the gunfire, it's illegal. And so you need to turn it in. You need to get rid of it. They're, for now, I think they're grandfathering some of it, but I, I think you're right. I mean, they eventually, if they get their way, they will take away our weapons. That's not, I, I don't think at this point that's being hyperbolic. No, well, the Supreme Court, fortunately, um, Trump did a great, great thing and, and put some people on the Supreme Court that are uh, believe in the Constitution and that they believe that it is an absolute document and they take it literally. And um, it, 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 they just had a ruling where uh, they threw out the, you know, you, you have to be 21 to buy pistols. It was that New York, I think? or um, But yeah. uh, they threw that out. No, man, people can go. They can go to war when they're 18. They can vote when they're 18. That's right. when that's the age of consent in this country. And you can't restrict them from owning a pistol just because they, just because you know you want some arbitrary age of 21. That's 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 just not right. Um, and and I I agree 100. percent I mean it, it's you know the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Period. Uh, period. The debt ceiling. <laughs> that. That whole game that comes around, it seems like every budget cycle, um, and everybody tries to put their brinkmanship on. The Democrats always like to say the world's going to come to the end, and that Republicans, they hate old people, they hate children, they hate the military, and none of these things are going to survive if we don't let us spend as much money as we want. Um, and it, it, it's not, <laughs> it's, a, it's a spending problem, right? Yeah, 100%. I mean, look, with, with the debt ceiling, I think what people need to, to realize is that if 
this whole talk about default and we're not going to fund all these different programs. They roll out a new program every week to try and scare people. Our government takes in nearly $5 trillion in tax revenue. Everybody just pay, everybody just kind of checked to the IRS last month, right? We take yeah. in $5 trillion to service the debt, to pay to pay our bills, and to pay off the, the interest. It's about $930 billion. So we've got plenty of money. When Biden says, like, this program, that program is not going to get funded, the only way that we default is if Biden calls up the Treasury Secretary and says, don't pay the bills. It happens automatically. So... Like you said, everything we're seeing right now is performative. Now, however, what Biden wants, he's, he's made this very clear. He wants a blank check for discretionary spending. And the Republicans came in and said, look, we're $32, $33 trillion in debt. Our dollar right now, is our, our status as prime reserve currency holder is being threatened. We've got to do something about the spending. And Biden, you know, of course, freaks out about all that. And But the Republicans put forward a very reasonable package. For me, I thought it should have had more cuts. The Republicans said, hey, Let's just restore spending back down to where it was a year ago. Let's take back all the COVID money that wasn't spent. There's a couple other things in there that they did, but that was generally the package they put forward. And I think this was actually a really brilliant chess move by Republican leadership, Kevin McCarthy. They put forward this very moderate package and Biden said like, no, you guys are MAGA extremists. So basically they could have put anything in front of Biden. He would have said, no, you're MAGA extremists. Because he's basically saying like, I, I have the executive branch and I have the Senate. I'm not playing ball with you guys. And I'm going to continue to lie about like cutting from veterans and cutting from senior citizens. But look, yeah, everyone should realize it's all performative. But if we don't start making hard cuts right now, we are going to have major financial issues, potentially financial ruin. So we've got to get serious about actually being fiscally responsible. Yeah, you know, they want to try to separate. Well, we'll talk about spending later. You just go ahead and approve the increase in the debt ceiling, and then we'll negotiate on the spending. Yeah, just, but just you're talking about it. This is a party yeah. that ate their own. I mean, look what they did to Manchin. He agreed to a deal to, to sign off on the so-called, uh, you know, well, it's the Green New yeah. Deal is what it was. They they said it was the Inflation Reduction Act. But um, they, they uh, th- and, and then they, they stabbed him in the back. Why, why would the Republicans trust him at this point? Um you brought up uh, McCarthy, man. I am, uh, I'm pleasantly surprised with what he's done, and and uh, I, I had my concerns about him. I think a lot of people did. Um, thankfully, we have folks like Matt Gates and the whole uh, Freedom Caucus that held his feet to the fire and made sure that, look, man, if you want to lead this party, you're going to have to work with us, and you're going to have to, um, you know, behave a little more like a conservative and and not a uniparty guy. And um, and he has. I mean, it's. Uh, it, it, it's it's refreshing to see that because I was concerned. I mean, our last Speaker of the House was Paul Ryan, right? Uh, yeah, McCarthy. I mean, he's done good, don't you think? I think so. Yeah, I mean, everything with he, he's done with the budget fight, uh, releasing the January six footage. Uh, I've been very very impressed. So yeah, I mean, it's funny because Republicans we always get accused of being the ones that are you know kind of like these these robot mean people or whatever but if you look at the republican caucus it's very diverse and and mccarthy is hearing from every single side of the republican caucus and and cutting deals accordingly with republicans we're showing on the republican side that hey we're a big tent party we have a lot of ideas we don't always agree however we'll be be transparent you can see you know who voted for mccarthy who didn't you could see the the rules package that they wanted negotiated whereas the democrats are a bunch of automatons i mean they do exactly what pelosi and hakeem jeffries told them to do like you said the second that joe manchin says i'm going to cut a reasonable deal they go after the guy and they crucify him so i mean i I think what mccarthy is doing i think he's he's showing i mean sometimes as we air a little bit of, of dirty laundry at the end of the speaker fight, 
but you show the Republicans like, look, we, we have a lot of different opinions. However, we're going to come together at the end and we're going to negotiate. Locally here in Washington, uh, since that's where you're running in, um, we have a very soft on crime government here in the state. Uh, Washington, of course, is a super blue state. I think everybody knows that. And um, your opponent <laughs> is one. And I think her voting record speaks for itself. Uh, and it's exactly what you'd expect, whether it's abortion or gun control or crime or taxes. And uh, do you want to uh, expand on that a little bit and talk about your opponent here in Washington? Yeah, absolutely. If you go back and you look at uh, just a couple months ago, when we were running against each other. If you look at her campaign ads and her rhetoric, she basically tried to run as a moderate Republican. But now that she's actually in office, she, she's got a record. So on the economy, she voted to fund the 87,000 IRS agents that are going to target you know, individual small businesses with crime. I mean, crime's, crime is plaguing our state and our district in a very big way. She is endorsed and supported by the Democrats in Washington state that are opening, literally opening up our prisons, decriminalizing crime, tying the police's hands behind their back. We have a major local issue we have is the I-5 crossing that connects basically Portland and Vancouver right across the Columbia River. Folks from uh, our district use it quite, quite a bit because a lot of people used to even pre-COVID uh, work in Portland. So we need to get that bridge replaced. though, is She wants to put light rail on that bridge. And light rail basically would serve as a superhighway for all the homelessness and crime coming out of Portland right into our district. The residents of Clark County have rejected that program, that, that uh, idea on three separate ballot measures. But Marie Perez wants to put light rail from downtown Portland right into Vancouver and up the I-5 corridor to connect basically Portland with Olympia and Seattle. And that's going to skyrocket crime that's already out of control here in the district. Yeah. She also wants to put tolls on it. And the tolls will disproportionately affect Washingtonians versus Oregonians because there's a lot of Washingtonians that go down to Portland to work, to shop, because Oregon doesn't have sales tax. And so we would be hammered by those tolls. She supports all of this. I, I don't know if that's because her she still has a business in Portland. So sometimes I think she forgets which side of the Columbia she's representing. Um, but that's absolutely abysmal. On the moral issues, and this is something that's real big. I had a lot of Republicans because we had a hard-fought primary not vote for me. Yeah. But on the moral issues, with, with abortion, she's a radical. She believes in not just abortion up to the ninth month. She voted against the Born Alive Bill. Now, the Born Alive Bill would have would provide life-saving care for a baby that survives an abortion, a baby outside the womb that, for whatever reason, someone tried to terminate, that to give that baby, that child, medical aid. So Marie yeah. Perez and all the Democrats are okay with a baby bleeding out on the operating table. This is completely radical. This doesn't even Disgusting. touch the pro-life versus pro-choice. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely despicable. And look, she just voted, like, like I said before, she voted against the Parental Bill of Rights. She, in our, our debates, she vocalized that she is on board with the indoctrination of our children. She's okay with, with state-sponsored gender-affirming care, mutilation and castration being given to minors. And then she voted accordingly. She just voted to let biological men compete in sports against women in middle school and high school. That includes these biological men going into women's spaces, locker rooms, and bathrooms. So she will not protect our kids. She won't protect our communities. Her economic policies are absolutely destroying the district. So this next cycle, we're going to be really uh, hanging her record around her neck and letting the people know just how dishonest she's been.
Yeah, well, I think I think that uh, I, th- I think you're going to win. And and one of the things that you and uh, Matt Gates, you know, see, you seem to have become uh, uh, pretty good friends uh, it, it's, uh, on some level, right? And I, and I hope you get the chance to join him in Congress in 24. Uh, I, I really do. Yeah. And um, we have an event coming up here in Washington on Lake Taps um, with you and Matt Gates is going to be there. It's the uh, uh, Michelle's going of the Gatesby, right? Where um, it's a Gatsby kind of theme, right? 1920s. Uh, so we all get to be silly on July 1st. And, and that's going to be a great time. Uh, you're getting a, a big jump on the uh, 24 election. Tell me what it means to have the support of some of the some of these heavy hitters like uh, Matt Gates and, and the others that have gotten behind you. It's an honor. I mean, Matt Gates and uh, Paul Gersa were the first two congressmen that came out and endorsed me. Uh, I think even ahead of the Trump endorsement. I got the Trump endorsement right after that. But they came out and they endorsed me when I was going up against a, an incumbent. So they took a big risk. I got to know both of them, but especially got to know Matt Gates really well. Um, I, I was really uh, compelled to support Matt Gates early on when I was, uh, you know, not even involved in politics because of his stance against foreign interventions. I mean, Matt Gates understands how the military-industrial complex works. It's funny that he consistently votes against the military-industrial complex, and he represents a heavily military district. If you yes. look at Eglin Air Force bases in his district, a ton of his constituents are in the military, and they reward him by voting for him because he fights to keep us out of these endless wars. And so I, I think Matt has been a leader on that. So he, it, it's it's an honor to, to have his support, have his mentorship, too. I mean, he told me really early on. He doesn't accept any corporate PAC money, and he told me really early on. He was like, be careful with who offers you money because it's going to come with strings. He said, look, you're not going to need all the money. If you get out spent, that's fine. Get your message out there. You don't need all the money. You just need enough money. And I, every time I look at fundraising numbers, I look at how much money the Democrats have. I, I just I say that back to myself, and I look at you know, hey, stay true to your values. You know, listen to what Matt said. So honored to have his endorsement. Paul Gosar is another guy. Gosar took me down to the border to the Yuma crossing in the summer of 2021 so i can get some ground truth and so i'm really grateful for him as well troy nell's great congressman down there in texas there's a bunch of them that have just really come through uh and supported me obviously the support of president trump i was just down in mar-a-lago i was actually in um palm beach with don jr the day that trump got indicted in new york and i, I that's right i thought that yep. i thought that was hey, we're gonna cut our event short and don was gonna have to fly out but Hours after his dad got indicted, I think about two hours after his dad got indicted, he came and he did an event, you know, told people to, to give to my, my campaign, just very generous. You know, it, it's a true honor to have their support. Class, class act. I mean, what a classy move. I, I mean, he could have very easily blown that off. I mean, probably some people expected maybe he would, but, uh, yeah. you know, made a commitment and, and, he, and, he, and he powered through it. And he knows, man, he knows his dad's going to be all right. He's, he's not... He's not uh, <laughs> yeah. He's not worried about it, right? So, uh, yeah, for those of you up here in Washington, um, JoeCampForCongress.com or actually anywhere. I mean, we fundraising to get another America First candidate into back to D.C. is important. And it doesn't matter where uh, where where the support comes from. It's important. Uh, if you are here in Washington, though, and you want to hit up a real cool event, JoeCampForCongress.com slash Gates. And you can get tickets to come out and, and actually, uh, you know, hear Matt, meet Matt Gates in person and Joe Kent and hear from them, uh, you know, have a little conversation, get some really good food. There's going to be entertainment. There's going to be music. There's going to be, I guess, fire dancers and um, who knows what. I think it's going to get pretty crazy. It's going to be our little early uh, celebration of the the uh, of this great country of ours, right, and our freedom. So uh, are you looking forward to this or what? It's going to be a good one, I think. It's going to be awesome. I, I mean, the crew we have up there that's putting the, the event on, they threw a great fundraiser for me last year. Uh, we have Matt Gates out this time headlining. So 
it's gonna it's gonna be a great event. I hope to see everybody out there. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, definitely. So um, let's make sure again everybody knows how to support Joe Kent. That's JoeKentForCongress.com, um, and 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 then for the local event up here, JoeKentForCongress.com/slash/gates. He's also on Twitter like everybody else is and there's his twitter address like there uh joe kent 16 jan 19 and um make sure to support and follow him on there he's always supporting uh great causes he, he retweets some cool stuff and he has some pretty good original stuff too i might say um you know i want to thank you a lot for coming on man uh it took us a while to get our schedules coordinated there where it could happen and, and as we're doing it we're doing it on the road and uh and i think it's cool man it's just cruising down i-5 here and um yep and having a good time parting words Got anything? no I, I pre- no man i appreciate you having me on it's, it's, it's an honor i appreciate you coming out to dc for the uh, the original gates event and then emceeing the event we had with raheem and shayless man that was that was awesome just uh i know everybody out there if, you, if you're watching this you're probably america first you're probably conservative and sometimes things can look kind of bleak it looks like things aren't going well for us but look remember if the uh, situation was hopeless all their propaganda and nonsense it wouldn't be necessary we're going to win if we get out there we ballot harvest we stay engaged go reach out to your friends who say that hey it's all rigged and i can't participate reach out to them and make sure they vote that's how we take our country back so honored to be with you guys thank you so much yeah definitely get involved get involved for sure um anyway okay hey folks uh, again that was joe kent and you can find him on joekentforcongress.com uh, we'll give that one more time joekentforcongress.com support from anywhere is going to be appreciated twitter at joekent 16 jan 16 or Jan 19. And um, in fact, I'll just pop it up right here so you can see it. Anyway, uh, make sure you support him. We got to support these America first candidates. We've got to make sure that we do what we can to get the vote out, that we do what we can to support the people that are going to support America. Anyway, hey, thanks for watching. This has been the Nun Report. Make sure to follow on Rumble rumble.com slash the nun report follow 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 it's important it gets the algorithms better it gets it more exposure as conservatives and american first people we need i think to support each other and to help get the message out to as many people as possible and touch as many people as possible you can also find me on all the socials at the nun report except for tiktok because i don't do that commie bs or just go to my website thenunreport.com you can link into everything right there one stop one shop Anyway, hey, uh, thanks again for watching. And as always, until next time, may the odds be ever in your favor. Cheers.